The story is told that in the 18th century, maybe in China, an abbot was disciplining two monks for some infraction of the rules. And so he imposed upon them the punishment of silence. They were not allowed to talk for a long period of time. But even so, they tried to figure out some way to fill the quiet hours. Finally, one of them gathered 28 flat stones. And putting different numbers on them, he devised a game. Using gestures, the men agreed on certain rules to use in this game. But the most difficult part was keeping silent when one of them scored a victory. Then they remembered that they were permitted to say aloud the prayer, Dixit Dominus Domino Mio. And by using one word of this Latin expression meaning Lord or Master, the winner was able to signal his triumph by yelling, Domino. The monks gave the impression they were praying. When in reality, they were playing. Last week, we began our study through this first letter by the Apostle John. If you remember, false teaching from the Gnostics had crept into the early church. And these Gnostics suggested that Jesus was not a real man. Not flesh and blood, but something more like an apparition. It was crazy talk. And so John shot right out of the gate explaining that he and the other apostles were eyewitnesses to the earthly ministry of Jesus from the very beginning. They were there from the start. They saw what Jesus did and they heard what He spoke. They walked with Him and they talked with Him and they touched Him. Jesus was no apparition. John and the other apostles could confirm that Jesus was in fact the Son of God. God in the flesh. And they had fellowship with Him. And John wanted his readers to experience this same fellowship. Now surely, many claimed 
Many claimed to be in fellowship with God. And quite frankly, anybody can make that claim. But unfortunately, like this game of dominoes that was played under a false pretense, we can claim to be one thing when in truth we are another. We can claim to have fellowship with God when in reality we're just playing games. That's what we're going to explore this morning. Claiming one thing and yet doing another. So if you have your Bible, let's pick up where we left off from last week. So turn to 1 John chapter 1. Not the Gospel of John, but 1 John chapter 1 beginning with verse 5. 1 John 1, beginning with verse 5. We are told. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light. And in Him... There is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And His Word is not in us. As you can see, there is a lot in this passage. But before we jump into the deep end of the pool, I need to put this into some context. And that brings us right back to the false teaching of the Gnostics. The Gnostics claimed to have a secret knowledge of God that ordinary Christians did not have. They had some crazy ideas about Jesus. And they had some crazy ideas about themselves. In their teachings, the Gnostics promoted this idea that our human spirit, our inner being, is naturally good. 
It's really the only thing that counts. Whereas our physical bodies, our flesh, is evil and completely separate from our human spirit. And what that meant for many of them was this. As long as their human spirit was connected to God, and that's all that mattered, their physical bodies could live like the devil. So they're claiming, you're just seeing my body do what it wants, when it wants, and with whom it wants. That's my body doing all of that. But my spirit, well, I'm sinless. So no harm, no foul. That's the false teaching John is confronting in his letter. But what he says is very relevant to you and to me just as well. In verse 5, John tells us, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we're going to have fellowship with God, it might be beneficial to know who we are dealing with. So John makes it clear that he's not sharing his own ideas about God. What God may be like. Rather, he says this is God's message about himself. This message was taught by Jesus. It was heard by his disciples. And now John shares it with his readers. And the message is this. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Many biblical writers from both the Old and New Testaments tell us a lot about what God has done and what God will do. But here, John is focused on the nature of God. Describing the essence of his character in one single word. God is light. Now, what does that mean? God is light. Well, as you might imagine, there are a lot of thoughts as to what that might mean. But I agree with Charles Swindoll that this expression of light tells us That God is good with nothing 
bad. He is all pure with nothing corrupt. He is all clean with nothing dirty. He is all right with nothing wrong. He is all truth with nothing false. God has revealed Himself in the flesh. And in this revelation, in this light, He makes His righteousness and His holiness, His goodness and His purity known to us. In this light, God brightly shines and makes visible in the person of Jesus Christ, His moral perfection. Because He is light, there is no darkness in Him at all. Not even a microscopic speck. No sin, no falsehood, no ignorance, no error, and no evil in any shape form, or fashion. There is no dark side to God. Do you see where John is going with this? Just based on this one single aspect of God's character, since God is light and there is no darkness in Him, no person to include the Gnostics can claim they are living in genuine fellowship with God while at the same time living a sinful life. It's inconceivable. And it contradicts the very nature of God. Then John continues, beginning with verse 6. And he says... If we say we have if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness we lie and do not practice the truth but <clears throat> if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. In verse 6, if you notice, John puts an emphasis on what one says in relation to how one lives. And he tells us, <clears throat> and I am paraphrasing here, you can say what you want. You can claim to have fellowship with God. But if your walk does not match your talk. You're lying. And you're living a lie. 
Now, just for clarification, this is important. The walk does not refer to a single action. Whether the action is good or bad, a single action might best be described as a step. Like a step in the right direction or a step down the wrong path. But in the Bible, the image of walking speaks to one's manner of life. One's manner of living. It's synonymous with one's lifestyle. How, one's, how one lives their life in a normal, routine basis. So John is telling us that if we say we have fellowship with God and yet live our lives as if He doesn't matter, then we are lying about our relationship with God. Jesus spoke about this in one of the most terrifying passages, at least to me, in the entire Bible. I have shared this passage with you on several occasions, and I'm going to share it with you again. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 21, this is Jesus speaking. The gracious, loving, merciful Jesus. Okay? He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Did you notice that Jesus put an emphasis on what one says versus what one does? Just as John has been explaining, you can say what you want. You can call Jesus your Lord. You can even do some amazing religious stuff. Judas did. But if there is no difference in your life, and if you continually and habitually walk in darkness, or as Jesus said, practice lawlessness... 
you have no fellowship with Him. That's not being judgmental. That's just the truth in light of the nature of God. So John has explained the terrible consequences of walking in darkness. But now he shares the benefits of walking in the light. And in verse 7 he says, But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light is walking with God. And it describes our manner of living, whereby we are abiding in Him, we are following Him, and we are obeying Him. All the while, we are growing and being gently bent, gently bent, In His direction. Like a plant that grows and is gently bent towards the direction of the sun. In our walk in the light, we stay in close contact with God. And the longer we walk with Him, the more He rubs off on us. It's only natural. Our fellowship with Him deepens. And as we walk in the light, we also experience the continual cleansing of sin that the light reveals in us. Through our union with Christ, We have forgiveness of all sin. Now, why is John bringing this up? Well, it should come as no surprise to any of us that just because we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, just because we are described as new creatures in Christ with new natures, our old desires and our old tendencies and our old impulses are still very present. Our old fallen nature did not magically disappear when we became Christians. It still lingers. Now, fortunately, we are not powerless against it. We don't have to give into it. But be that may, it still challenges us. It taunts us. It whispers to us. 
and it pulls us towards disobedience against God. And we know this to be true because we experience it. I think this little prayer, I love it, just sums it up. Dear Lord, you're really going to be proud of me. I haven't gossiped, lusted, or lost my temper today. I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, or selfish. I'm doing pretty good. Now, Lord, in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, all bets are off. I'm pretty sure I'm going to need a lot of help. I like that prayer. As Christians, our salvation does not mean the end of our struggle with sin. In fact, I would argue it's just the beginning. It's a battle. And in this battle, we have those occasional moments where we stumble. We make mistakes. We get tripped up. We sin. And as terrible as that is, John tells us that the blood of Jesus cleanses us. That's present tense. Okay? That's present tense. The blood of Jesus cleanses us. Meaning, the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing us from sin. It's a statement of fact. On the cross, Jesus paid the full penalty for all sin. And that's why the Apostle Paul can tell us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, I love this verse, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, for those in union with Him, for those who believe, there is no condemnation from God. Another word for condemnation is judgment. Judgment. So there is no judgment because our sin has already been judged on the cross. Yes, we may still struggle with sin, but we are declared not guilty by God 
because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, which provides continual, ongoing cleansing of sin. Now, John may have anticipated that someone would read this letter and say, well, the Gnostics say we don't sin. To which John would respond in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, if we claim we have no fallen nature, we are lying. And sooner or later, and here's the disturbing part, we start to believe our own lies. We aren't just deceiving others. We are deceiving ourselves, convincing ourselves that everything is fine with God, even though we are living like we don't even know Him. John MacArthur explains it really well. He says, listen to this, people today minimize and redefine sin often alleging that the failures of their lives and certain disorders exist because of how others have treated them. The victim mentality reigns supreme as popular culture comforts itself in affirming that people are basically good and whatever may be wrong is not really wrong but merely a preference of personal freedom. Instead of accepting responsibility for their behavior, people demand to be accepted as they are. That's a reality check, isn't it? A person walking in the light does not deny their sin. Try to justify it or attempt to cover it up. They don't blame others for it or make excuses about it. For if they do, they aren't just deceiving others, they are deceiving themselves. And then to make matters even much worse, if we can jump to verse 10... John tells us, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. So by denying our sin, we not only make ourselves liars, we try to make God a liar. By contradicting His Word which says, for all have sinned. We need to be honest about our sin. Intimacy 
with God begins with honesty. And that brings us back to verse 9, where John says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The cure to denying our sin is to do exactly the opposite, to confess it. And let me explain what John meant by that. The word confess literally means to say the same thing. That's what it means. To say the same thing. That is, to agree with God that our sin is sin. Remember, it is God who determines what is sin, what right and what wrong is, not you and me. So when God exposes our sin, when He calls it out, when we become aware of it, we need to say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. That's what confession is. When we sin, we honestly call it what God calls it. Take responsibility for it and turn from it. And then John tells us that God forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Okay. It's time to buckle in. Let me say that verse 9 is not as simple as it appears. And I will freely admit, I may be making this harder than it has to be. Highly likely. Okay? I will give that to you. You can tell me about it later. But I'm going to take a stab at it. We've already been told in verse 7. We've already been told in verse 7 that the blood referring to the death of Jesus on the cross hear me, cleanses us from all sin. You know what it said? That's what John said. All sin. All means all. Past, 
present, and future. Are you with me? For those who believe, Jesus paid the penalty for all our sin in full. Our punishment, all of it, was put on Him. If that's true, and it is true, if all of our sins were forgiven at the cross, then why does John now mention the confession of sins and forgiveness? Let me try to answer that from a a teaching moment given by Jesus. Okay? Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, beginning with verse 5. Are you there? Okay. This is the occasion where Jesus is with his disciples during the last Passover meal. We talked about that several weeks ago, right? You remember that? And sometime during this meal, I don't know exactly when, not told, we're told this. Verse 5. Then he, he is Jesus, then he poured water into the basin. You guys know the story. And began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. I love Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, Do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never. You know, God loves that word. (laughs) Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you referring to Judas. Okay, let me explain what's going on. In that culture, okay, in that culture, before coming to a, a dinner engagement like this, a man would take a bath to get clean. 
And when he got to his destination for dinner, after walking in sandals in the dirt, a lowly servant, usually the lowest one in the house, would wash his feet. In this passage, we are told that Jesus took on the role of a lowly servant and began to wash the feet of his disciples. And before Jesus could get to Peter's feet, Peter put them in his mouth in so many words and said, never shall you wash my feet. Peter couldn't handle it. How could the Lord stoop so low as to do such a humble thing? It's not right. Well, Jesus answered him and said, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. It's getting deep here. Okay? If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. To which Peter replied, got to love Peter, Lord, then wash my feet and also my hands and my head. Then in verse 10, and this is where I want to focus. Jesus responds and says, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. During his earthly ministry, in his teaching, Jesus often took something that was common and practical in his culture and applied some deep spiritual truth to it. And this is no exception. And he takes routine feet washing and presents a picture of spiritual cleansing and forgiveness. And what he teaches is this. When a person trusts Jesus Christ as his Savior or her Savior and Lord, they are fully bathed, so to speak. Completely clean. Their sins are washed away and forgiven by the blood of Jesus, just as John said. However, as a believer walks in this world and struggles with sin, it's easy to collect dirt on your feet along the way. Jesus said, you don't need to be bathed again. For He knows that will be settled on the cross once and for all by Him in a few hours. It will be settled. Instead, 
one only needs to wash their feet. And that's where 1 John 1, 9 comes into play. Again, John says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The closer we walk in fellowship with God, the more we will become conscious of our own sinfulness. It's just part of the spiritual growth process. And given what we have covered thus far, as we are honest with God, as we agree with Him, as we call sin a sin, we know that in light of God's character and because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are continually forgiven and cleansed. Or said in another way. Okay? Or said in another way. We can come to God in all honesty and confess our sins because we are forgiven. There was a little boy visiting his grandparents on a farm. He was given a slingshot to play with. And he practiced in the woods. But he couldn't hit a thing. Getting a little discouraged, he headed back for dinner. And as he was walking back, he saw Grandma's pet duck. And out of impulse, he let the slingshot fly. Hit the duck square in the head and killed it. He was in shock. And in a panic, he hid the dead duck in a woodpile. Only to see his sister watching. Sally had seen it all. But she said nothing. After lunch, the next day, Grandma said, Sally, let's wash dishes together. But Sally said... Grandma, Johnny told me he wanted to help you in the kitchen. Then she whispered to Johnny, 
Remember the duck? So Johnny washed the dishes. Later that day, Grandpa asked if the children wanted to go fishing. And Grandma said, I'm sorry, but I need Sally to help make supper. Sally just smiled and said, well, that's all right, because Johnny told me he wanted to help. She whispered again, remember the duck. So Sally went fishing. And Johnny stayed to help. After several days of Johnny doing both his chores and Sally's chores, he finally couldn't take it any longer. He came to Grandma and confessed that he had killed her duck. Grandma knelt down gave him a hug and said, Sweetheart, I know. You see, I was standing at the window and I saw the whole thing. But because I love you, I forgave you. I was just wondering how long it would take for you to be honest about it and come to me. For those in Christ, you are forgiven. But to experience the forgiveness... Requires honesty. Intimacy begins with honesty. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the forgiveness you provided through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. I thank you that my sins are washed away and they are covered by the finished work of your Son on a cross for us. Thank you. I thank you that we're forgiven. And that because we are forgiven, we can be honest with you. May you be honored and glorified in us. Father, I pray that our our talk would be consistent with our walk. I don't want to be deceived. And I don't want to call you a liar. Through your spirit, give us the the power to resist our fallen nature, to, to resist sin, and to live for you.
thank you for who you are and what you've done. You are so good. May you be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. For those in Christ, my brothers and sisters, I don't care what you've done in the past. Whatever it is. Whatever you've done, God has seen it all. Hadn't he? He has seen it all. Absolutely nothing is hidden from him. Nothing is hidden from him. Nothing. He has seen the good, the bad, the ugly, and the really ugly in all of us. He has seen it all. And He would say to you and me, I love you more than you'll ever know. You are forgiven. My son covered that. So, can you be honest with me? I just want you to be honest with me. That's what he asks of us. Be honest with me. Can you do that? Maybe you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's a whole other ball game. That's a whole other ball game. You carry your sin. That's terrible to think about. You are in desperate need of a Savior. And I would love to introduce you to Him. For He loves you. Maybe you're looking to join a a group of people who are just like you. Just like you. (laughs) We'd love to have you. Or maybe there's something else. Whatever, Whatever that might be. I just ask that you'd respond to God. Be honest with Him. Intimacy begins with honesty. Intimacy begins with honesty. That's what he's asking. Let me close in prayer. Pray for our
for our offering and also for our, our little time of fellowship afterwards. So, so pray with me. Father, again, I thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. Father, I, I pray that I did service to your word. Lord God, I just pray that uh, your word would just, uh, uh, just settle into our hearts. And that, Father, you'd help us to live uh, a life uh, that is consistent with your nature and consistent with our words. Help us to live for you. Father, as we uh, take offering this morning, Father, I pray that you would, you would bless the gift and the giver, that you would help us to give with a, a, a generous and a cheerful heart. And Father, help us as a church to use your money wisely. And Father, for our fellowship afterwards, Father, I, I do pray that it be a, a meaningful time with one another. We have a common bond, and it is you. So, Father, we take joy in that. I pray, Lord God, that we would just have a, a meaningful time with one another, a significant time where contacts and connections are being made. Bless the food to our bodies. Bless those who brought food and prepared food. And, Father, we thank you for who you are and what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.